Like Yesenia said, my name is Jordan. My wife Kaylee and I, we get to be the next-gen directors here. And um, also, sometimes we get to speak, which is really cool. Um, and so I'm excited to be here. I want to tell you a little bit about myself. Uh, one of the things that I'm passionate about, and if you know me at all, you, 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 you'll hear me talking about it, because I talk about it incessantly, probably annoyingly to those who are close to me, um, is I, I, I've been to Israel a few times, and I'm really passionate about, like, the idea of understanding the cultural context of the Bible. I just love it. And I remember like the first time I'd ever went to Israel, uh, our guide took us out on the first day, sat us down, and he told us a story. And it was a story about a, a first century rabbi named Akiva, which is a cool name if we're being honest, right? Akiva is a cool name. He came like maybe a couple decades after Jesus and was walking around and people still talk about what Akiva wrote. Like he's a, he's a like mega man when it comes to understanding the law, understanding the Torah, all this kind of stuff. People still talk about it all the time. And there's the story about Akiva that because he was like such a deep thinker, um, he would oftentimes get lost in his thoughts and, you know, miss his turn, take a wrong turn or whatever because he was so, I, I'm sure none of you have ever done that before, um, but Akiva did. Turns out everyone's human, right? Um, so there's a story of Akiva one day. He, he's walking to the synagogue and, he, and, he, and he's going to meet his disciples and, he, and he's thinking about the section of the Torah that he's going to teach them about. And he's excited about it. And he's chewing on it in his head and he's thinking, he's thinking, and he's so lost in his thoughts that he walks right past the turn to the synagogue and keeps going. Doesn't even notice. Keeps going, keeps going, and eventually he walks right up to a Roman garrison. Now, he has no idea where he is because he's so deep in thought, right? And so there's a Roman centurion who's watching the gate, and he sees this rabbi approaching head down, walking with the purpose, and so the centurion's like, oh, right, it's time for me to do my job. And so he sets up, he smacks his spear on the ground and yells, who are you? Why are you here? And Akiva, like, kind of like, whoa, because he, he's lost in thought, right? And he, and he starts kind of like looking around at his surroundings and trying to find where he's at, but he isn't responding because he's disoriented, so the centurion again goes, who are you? Why are you here? And Akiva takes a moment, and he looks up at the centurion and says, how much do they pay you to ask those two questions? To which the Roman centurion is confused, right? That's a weird response, right? It's a weird response. The Roman centurion says, I don't know, 10 drachma a day, 100 bucks. I don't know what that translates to. 10 drachma a day. Akiva takes a moment, thinks, and says, yeah, I'll pay you twice that if you stand by my door and ask me those questions, two questions every day when I leave my house. Who are you? Why are you here? And I love that story because what it communicates is these two questions, who am I and why are we here, are so fundamental to the human experience that no matter where we're from, we're asking those two questions. We've all had experiences of asking, who am I? Why am I here? What's my purpose in the world? What is my identity in the world? I remember I was 14-ish when I started really thinking about this. What am I here to do? And I knew I wanted to help people and because um, I'm just great like that. Um, and I, my dad is an ER doctor, um, and I was like, you know what, I could be a doctor. I love my dad, I look up to my dad, I think he's incredible, I could be a doctor. That's what I'm gonna be. I think I, I, I might, be, might be smart enough to do it. I've since changed my opinion on that fact. But um, 
And then one day, my freshman year, I was set. I was like, I'm going to be a doctor, probably ER like my dad. It's whatever. I know it's a cool job, but I could do it. Like, I could hang. You know what I mean? Like, that's, that's me, right? Um, and then we had this project my freshman year uh, for career day where you pick a career that you want to be when you grow up, and you shadow a person for a day, and then you write a paper on it, okay? Um, and so I was like, that's great. I want to be what my dad does, so I'll just follow my dad to work. And so I did. I spent the day in the ER with my dad. And it was a pretty, like, low-key day. Nothing much was happening. And I was like, yeah, I definitely could do this. Wrap some ankles, maybe, like, tell people, you know, that's just a cold, take some aspirin. Like, I can do that. Like, I, I can do that. And then there came a moment where a call came in, somebody picked it up, somebody whispered something to my dad, and then my dad started shouting commands. And there was just, like, this busyness, busyness. Get a room ready. I need this. I need that. I need a gurney and other medical things. I need a needle and some scalpels and all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, okay, something's happening. And I, I pull my dad aside. And I'm like, dad, dad, what's happening? And he goes, um, there's been a car accident. Um, and somebody is coming in who's very hurt, and we're going to be in that room. And I'm already picturing, like, they're going to need me to staunch the flow of blood, and I'm going to do it, and it's going to be great, and I, all this kind of stuff. And so I'm, like, amping myself up, and I get in the room, and then they re wheel this woman in who had been in a uh, car accident, and she had had a compound fracture in her ankle. Now, if you don't know what that is, it's, you, your ankle is supposed to be straight, and hers was at a right angle, okay? And she's obviously in a lot of pain. And I'm sitting there, and I'm watching my dad, and my dad stands up and sets the ankle. Now, there are some of you in here who, when you heard my, a story about my dad setting an ankle, your reaction was, man, that's so cool. I wish I could have seen that. And the rest of you are normal. <laughs> so I'm sitting there. He, he sets the ankle, and no joke, you guys, I fainted, just I, in the room. I'm coming to, my arm is in like a bio-waste hazard can. A nurse is like helping me up. Turns in like, uh, Dr. McDaniel, is that your son? He's like, he used to be, but not anymore. And I remember I was like, okay, maybe I'm not supposed to be a doctor. But I just remember, because this question is so hard, we're trying to figure out who am I, why am I here, right? And one of the things that makes it trickier also is that we're surrounded by stories all the time that are bombarding us, that are actually telling us what the answer to that question is, and they're always different. Like if you think about any commercial ever, this is what you're, they're doing. Who are you? You're an adventurer. Why are you here? To see the far corners of the world. The only way you can do that is to buy the Ford Bronco. Who are you? Well, you're an elite athlete. Why are you here? Well, you're here to compete athletically and impress people and smell great while you're doing it. How do you do that? By degree deodorant. It's absurd to, to say, right? But just watch for it. Over and over and over, we're surrounded by stories that are telling us who we are and why we're here, and they're all different. In fact, sometimes they're so pervasive that we don't even know we're encountering them. They're like the water that we're swimming in. Now, we've been in a series on the Exodus, on Moses, where we've been talking about our identity, who we are, and why we're here. And the thing is, is what the Bible does in the Exodus story is it's setting it up as a clash between two powers who are telling different stories. The power and story of Pharaoh and the power and story of God. 
and they're coming together, and they both have different answers to the questions, who are you and why are you here? And it's this heavyweight clash between the two of them. So today we're going to be in Exodus chapter 7. We're going to read a section from Exodus chapter 7 if you have your Bible. Um, And this is describing a confrontation when these two powers come head to head like a heavyweight match. And we're trying to figure out who's going to win, which story is going to prevail, what are the stories saying, what are they communicating. And it says this. This is one of the first times Moses has come before Pharaoh. God has sent Moses to Pharaoh to complete a specific task. And this is what happened. Exodus 7, verses 8 through 13. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, perform a wonder, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh, and it will become a snake. Cool trick. So Moses and Aaron went before Pharaoh and did as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw down his staff before Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a snake. The Pharaoh then summoned his wise men and the sorcerers, and they also, the magicians of Egypt, did the same by their secret arts. Each one threw down his staff, and they became snakes. But Aaron's staff swallowed up theirs. However, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So we have this scene, this heavyweight clash between two powers. Who's going to win, God or Pharaoh? Which story is true, the story of God or the story of Pharaoh? And then there's this scene where there's a stick that gets thrown to the ground, and naturally it becomes a stake. And then Pharaoh isn't actually that impressed because he has friends who can do the same magic trick. And so he gets those friends to come, and they throw their snakes or staffs on the ground. They become snakes, and he's like, see, that's not that impressive. It is impressive, if we're being honest. Um, And then there's this clash between the two of them. Now, it's interesting because what is happening, why this is happening is because we are in a situation, and by we, I mean the Israelites, are in a situation where they have been living under the story of Pharaoh for 400 years as a slave. And what Pharaoh has done is he has set up a system where their worth is based on how many bricks they can make. This is the story of Exodus. He turns his people, they're flourishing, he gets scared, he makes them slaves, and now they're making bricks. And so their worth is determined based on how many bricks they make. I know it's really difficult to think about a society where your worth was tied with your production. I know it's really hard for us, so I I need us to like really concentrate on what it would be like to live in a world where your worth was measured by how much you contribute, right? But that's the world they're living in. And so much so that when they don't contribute enough, it was reinforced by violence. What Pharaoh says is if they don't make enough bricks, beat them until they do. Oof. Right? So the story that Pharaoh begins to tell in the world is a story that is rooted in the idea that your worth is based on your production, and they're swimming in this. They're absolutely swimming in this. But the crazy thing is, is it's not just them that are enslaved. If you actually look, how many of you guys have seen Moon Knight yet? Anybody watched it? A couple of you have. Uh, It's a Disney show about a superhero. It's a new Marvel superhero, and essentially he is in a relationship with an Egyptian god, and not, a, not a relationship, but they're, you know, they're partners, I guess, and the Egyptian god makes him a superhero. And it introduces you to the Egyptian pantheon of gods. And the way that the Egyptian pantheons of gods viewed humanity was that humanity's existence was to be slaves and serve the gods. 
The chief among them was Pharaoh. Pharaoh was the first and greatest slave of Egypt. Over the course of the day, Pharaoh had to do rituals that if he didn't do it, they believed the sun wouldn't move across the sky. Every single day. Even Pharaoh is enslaved by the system that says your worth is your production, except his enslavement is even more insidious because he has no idea. And he's perpetuating it. His relationship with his pantheon of gods has caused him to now create the same relationship between him and his people. He is a slave, so he creates slaves. Enslaved people enslave people. And so he begins to tell this story where your worth is tied to your production. Who are you? You're a slave. Why are you here? To produce. Now the sad thing is, the story of Pharaoh is still alive and well today. We live in a society where we measure people's worth by their production. You think about it. We talk about Elon Musk. We say Elon Musk is worth $230 billion. We don't say Elon Musk has $230 billion or Elon Musk's wealth is $230 billion. We say this is how much he is worth. Now, you might say, Jordan, that's just pedantics. We all know that that's not what that's communicating, except words have power. They absolutely do. We live in a system and a, a structure where the idea of like, if you're anything like me, the idea of Sabbath is like, that's great in concept, but I can't do that. I have to be productive every single day. I'm enslaved to productivity. We live in a system where our value is literally measured by how much we're con contributing. That is the story of Pharaoh. Not only that, but that order is kept in place by violence. I don't know if you guys know this, there are 13,000 nuclear weapons in the world that we know about. Scientists agree it would take about 100 to make the world completely uninhabitable. So we have the power to destroy the world over 120 times. And yet, and those are very expensive to make, and yet if you talk to a social worker or a teacher, they are underfunded, under-resourced, and exhausted. That is the language of Pharaoh. And one of the things that happens is we hear that, and the first thing that comes into our brain is like, yes, but we live in the real world. This is the way it has to be. Things don't change. What it was yesterday is what it will be today, and what it is today is what it will be tomorrow, and things do not change. That is also the language of Pharaoh. And so that is the language in which they are swimming in, and that is the language that so many of us still are too. So many of us are enslaved to this idea that our worth is tied to our productivity, that we have to protect with violence. And we don't even know it. And then comes the other contestant in the story. The story of God. God comes out of the desert with Moses, and he's telling a different story. He sends Moses into Egypt to do one thing, and that is to liberate people from slavery, to take, free, to take enslaved people and make them free, to take people without a home and give them a home, to take people who don't have belonging and make, give them a place where they belong, a purpose, an identity in the world. And it's interesting, this movement of God towards liberation is then carried out throughout the rest of Scripture. Whenever God God shows up after the Exodus story, God identifies God's self with it. It is me, the God who brought you out of slavery.
Calvary, the liberating God. Over and over and over again, what you see is God is deeply concerned with how our world is structured, whether or not people have food or homes. There are stories of kings that get overthrown in the Bible, and the reason the Bible gives is because they didn't care for the poor. There have been stories of the Babylonian exile, which is a brutal thing where the country is destroyed and they're pulled to another country, and the reason the Bible gives in the book of Jeremiah is that they didn't care for the earth well. It's because over and over and over, what you see is God's movement is that of liberation, of bringing slaves, of breaking chains and making people free. Why? Because they're people. Not because of what they produce, but because there's inherent value in being a human being and being in relationship to God. So God comes in and he's telling a different story. Who are you? You're with me. You're a person who has value. And not only that, the way in which God is going to bring about that liberation is one specific way, and that's partnership with humanity. Partnership with humanity. He talks to Moses, and he says, Moses, I want to go with you. Can God have liberated the Egyptians without Moses' help? Yes. Of course God could. Could God have liberated the Egyptians without anyone's help? Yes. Of course God could. But God chooses his method with which he's going to bring about his movement, and that method is partnership. He's going to partner with human beings who have a relationship with him so that they can go out and bring about that redemption, that liberation in the world. Oftentimes when we talk about Christianity, we make it stop at that relationship piece, and I I want to be very clear. Personal relationship with Jesus is an incredibly, incredibly, incredibly important part of Christianity. It's the heartbeat of Christianity, a relationship with God. It's radical. But a Christianity that stops with personal relationship and doesn't go out any farther, if my Christianity stops only with me, that Christianity is 200 pounds soaking wet. It's not big enough. Christianity is a story not about only personal relationship with God, but it's about global redemption and global liberation that is brought about in part through people who have a personal relationship with God, partnering with God to make it happen. That's different. It's a bigger story, a story of liberation that answers the question, who are you? You're a partner with God. And why are you here? To join in in what God's doing. The story of Pharaoh says, who are you, a slave? Why are you here to produce? The story of God says, who are you, a partner, a member, a family member, and why are you here to join in and making everybody that? That is a different story, a radically new story that no other belief and pantheon of gods at the time had. It was completely and totally different. So the question that becomes, if God is looking for partners to bring about God's movement in the world of liberation, of justice, of home, of redemption, of reconciliation, all of those things, what kind of partners is God looking for? What kind of people join in in this practical way? What kind of partners is God calling us to be to take part in God's movement? Well, who else to look at except Moses? What is it about Moses that made God call Moses into partnership with God's mission of liberation. The first thing in the story of Moses, what we find out is that Moses is a person who sees. 
He sees the injustice that is going on. He sees the story of Pharaoh and what it is doing to his people. He, he understands it. And here's the thing. It's hard. I was reading a guy who is brilliant. His name is Abraham Joshua Heschel. If you have never read him, I encourage you to go buy all of his books and read all of his books so that we can talk about it because nobody's read him. Well, some people have. And I just want to talk about him all the time. But he was talking about this. So Abraham Joshua Heschel was a um, Jewish professor and rabbi that lived over the course of the two uh, or of the 1900s, 1990 or 1900s. Yeah, he marched with Martin Luther King. He lived through World War II. He did all of these things. He's a really cool guy. And he was talking about that one of the problems with modern humanity is we are so callous to catastrophes because we hear about them all the time. I was listening to a podcast recently, and this person was talking about empathy fatigue about how we keep hearing about these catastrophes that are happening in the world and there's a callousness that's forming in our heart because our brains were literally not developed to handle that much information. We were developed to care about the issues of our tribe, not the world. And we're the first generations who have now been globally connected and we're trying to figure out how to still see and care when we're being bombarded with catastrophes. And I don't fully know how to do that. But what I do know is that people who end up fully partnering with God, giving their lives to this mission, are people who at least see one area and they see it clearly. Moses does. The next, not only do they see it, they're people who cry out. What we see in the Exodus story is there's a part where the people are under so much suffering that they end up crying out. It doesn't even say to God. It just says to the air at how broken the system is, at how, how much pain that they are in. And oftentimes we think that like the idea of feeling something so deeply that it ends up making you cry out is not necessarily necessary. But if you look at the Bible, it is holy. There are all sorts of examples of this. If you read Malachi, if you read Habakkuk, if you read Amos, if you read Job, if you read the Psalms, if you read the book called Lamentations, which is literally an entire book of crying out because you've let yourself see the injustices, the pain, the story of Pharaoh that is prevalent in the world. You've let it affect you so much that you feel it. We pray things like, God, break my heart for what breaks yours. Have you guys heard this before? Some of you might have. It's this. Allowing yourself to see and allowing yourself to feel it so deeply that you end up crying out, but it doesn't stop there. It's also people who go. The story of Moses, what you see, what you see with Moses is first he sees the injustice of the people. He feels wrong. He feels it so deeply that he goes and he does something about it. And this story that he does is early in his life, he sees the injustice and his response is wrong. He ends up killing an Egyptian in order to save the slave that the Egyptian is beating. Oftentimes, we think we can't move forward because we don't know if our reaction is going to be right. But what God saw in Moses' heart in that moment is, yes, he did it wrong, but his heart it was for the story of God. So we can't be afraid of moving forward and doing things wrong because God redeems even our wrongs. So God is looking for partners in his movement towards liberation. The story of God, which says, you are a partner in what I'm doing. You are valuable because you're a human being made in the image of God. That is who you are, no matter what. And we're here to join in because not very many people know that. And in order to fully take part, we have to see. We have to feel so deeply that we cry out. And then we have to go and do something about it. 
And we all have examples of people like this. Nurses who spend their life caring for sick people are joining in. A doctor who spends her entire life researching how to solve like a disease that there's no cure for, her life is joining in in what God's doing. It's bringing about reconciliation in the world. Mothers and fathers who spend their lives teaching their children to love and care for their neighbor with everything that they have are joining in with what God is doing in the world. There are people who see, cry out, and they do something about it. There are people in this room, so many of you who are joining in in your specific way because you see something and you're moving towards it. That is what it means to take part with what God is doing in the world. And you can do it wherever you are. Business people who choose to pay their workers a livable wage so that they can have a good life, that's taking part in what God is doing in the world. Bringing about redemption, liberation, breaking chains, making people free, showing people that they belong. That is the story of God. And the movement of God is brought about in part by a group of people who have a personal relationship with God and are partnering with God to bring that about. But I say in part for a specific reason. And that's because if you actually look at the story of the people of Israel and the story of Moses, eventually this does succeed and they, pay, they, they take the people of Israel out. They bring them to a mountain called Sinai and there's all this like really cool stuff that happens about Sinai. And essentially what God does is God charges them to become the type of people that do what God did for them out of Egypt, but they do it for the rest of the world. He says, you will become a kingdom of priests, a group of people that serve as the intermediate between God and them. That's who you are. And so you see this group of people begin to try to live out what it means to be a partner with God. And they try, and then they forget. And then they try, and they forget. And then they try, and they forget. Over and over and over again, and there's something profoundly human about that. This is one of the things that makes me love the story of the Bible. It's because it is, doesn't mess around with the fact that it is human to forget and be reminded and then forget and be reminded. But what you see over the course of the story of this people trying to be a partner with God and failing over and over and over like I know that I have in my life, God's movement of liberation of breaking chains, of redeeming the world, of knitting together all the broken pieces is not stopped. Why? If it really is on us, why is the movement of God not stopped? But if you look closely at the story of Exodus, you realize that although we are partners with God in this movement, what this is, is an invitation into participation. It's not a responsibility to accomplish. It's an invitation into participation. It's not a responsibility to accomplish. Every single plague, God asks Moses to do something. Hit his staff into the water, and then the water turns into blood. Throw dust in the air, and now there are gnats. God didn't need Moses to do any of those things. But what God was doing was welcoming Moses into participatory action in the world. But the ultimate responsibility for liberating those people was always on God. It reminds me of a story when I was growing up, when we would go into our neighborhood, when you drive into our neighborhood, and my mom wasn't in the car. My dad would look over to our, uh, one of us kids and say, do you wanna drive? And we would be like, yeah. And so he would take us 
he would sit us on his lap, he would control the pedals, but we steered. The responsibility to get us home was always on my dad, but we were invited to participate. Could God have, could my dad have made us home all by himself? Did he need us to sit on his lap and steer? No, but he invited us to take part in what he was doing because the responsibility to accomplish the mission of God is on God, not us. And that's actually seen most clearly as multiple centuries later, God comes again and reenacts the Exodus in a powerful way. From the moment that Jesus was in Mary's womb, he begins to reenact the Exodus. He is born at a time when the leader is killing male children in order to stop him from being born. Who else was that? Moses. He then flees to Egypt to find refuge. Who else finds refuge in the nation of Egypt? Moses. He then, Moses spends 40 years in the wilderness before he starts his ministry to liberate the people of Israel. Who spends 40 days in the wilderness before he starts his ministry to bring about liberation once again? Jesus. Jesus comes in Luke chapter four and says, I'm here to set the captives free. That is why I'm here. The first miracle of Moses, turning water into blood. The first miracle of Jesus, turning water into wine. The Passover as the final liberating act where an innocent is killed so that these people can be born again as the firstborn of Israel. Who dies on Passover so that we can come into relationship with God and literally be born again? All the images are the exact same. It's Jesus. Jesus reenacts the Exodus on a grander scale, setting captives free, bringing hope to those who are hopeless, bringing meaning to those who think they're worth nothing, being giving purpose to those that think they can't contribute. That's what Jesus is doing over and over and over again on a much wider scale because the movement of God has always been about liberation, both of our own personal hearts, but also of the world, of people who don't have homes and people who don't have food and people who are, who are enslaved to productivity who think they're not worth it because they're not producing the way that they are. Jesus came to show us that we are valuable, that we have a home, that we belong as we are the greater exodus was Jesus on the cross. And there will come a day when the story of Pharaoh is wiped out completely. What the Bible says in Acts chapter three, he says, we are waiting for Jesus' return for the ultimate redemption of all things. Revelation takes a picture where all wrongs are made right, where all tears are wiped away. What Ephesians tells us is that in Christ, God's plan for the world is to unify all things into himself. There will come a day when the story of Pharaoh that enslaves so many of us is going to be wiped away forever, and it's going to be Jesus who has done that. But in the meantime, we get to participate in confronting and removing when the story of Pharaoh pops up once again, where we are, when we are, we can set it down. When it pops up again, we can stand up against it. That's what we get to do in the meantime. A movement of people bringing about liberation in the world because God, God's self, brought about liberation for us. That is who you are. That is who I am, and that is why we're here.
And if you're sitting here and you say, I have never experienced that home, that belonging. I didn't know that that was true about myself. I feel worthless because I don't produce. I feel like I don't belong. I'm here to tell you that Jesus paved a way to show you that no matter what, you belong. That you are loved, that you have a place. And you can accept it whenever you want. And so what I wanna do now is I want us to close our eyes and bow our heads. And if you're sitting in this room and you feel enslaved, you've never experienced the love of God, the belonging of God, and you wanna say yes to it for the first time, I want you to pray a prayer like this. God, thank you. Thank you for showing us, for believing in us, for showing us how much you love us, for providing us a home, for providing us a way to break the chains of slavery that we still live in. God, I say yes to that. I accept your love, and I will let you love me as I am. Now, if you said yes for that, to that for the first time tonight, to take part, to be a partner, to have the identity. We wanna mark this moment with an action. And so I just wanna encourage you with all heads bowed and all eyes closed, just raise your hand where you are. All right, hands down. As you guys put your hands down, it is our Ritual, it is our thing that we do always to put our hands together and say, Welcome home.